You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, one last dad joke, and this this might be a bad one. What was Whitney Houston's favorite type of coordination? You say coordination? Exactly. What was Whitney Houston's favorite type of coordination? Oh, I hope it has something to do with crack. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Hand I... Coordination, hand-eye coordination. Uh, oh, wow, that is terrible. Yeah, no, I, I. I oh I had boy. Track. Yes. So. Yeah, that's that's bad. Um, how how about this one? We did get a joke from a listener. Oh Are you yeah. Ready for this one? Okay, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. I don't think I saw yeah, this, so go. go ahead. Why do mermaids wear seashells? Um, something other because otherwise we'd be able to see there something i feel like that's kind of the beginning of it. i'm just not putting together the, the the punchline it's a bit on the nose there but uh no uh, it's be <laughs> it, it is because b shells are too small uh, <laughs> i like that that's funny yeah that that uh that goes out to uh sarah toga thank you very much for that thank you yes absolutely and with that, our our dad joke year has come to a close. <laughs> thank um, God. Thank God, exactly. And uh, we'll be moving on to uh, to bits of trivia from uh, uh, going uh, here for the next year. So, all right, Glenn, how's it been? How you been doing here? I've been good, thank you. And you, sir? Doing well as well. Um, Summer's coming to an end. Yes. Well, you know. We have another two months or so of summer up uh, down here in Arizona, but uh, <laughs> sure, sure, we have two weeks left. <laughs> After our interview with Sandy Siegel, spent some time talking to some other people down there in Texas, and kind of kind of did something a little different, and and kind of uh, was kind of ask questions back at the Devil Loop podcast. So yeah, that was kind of fun. Uh, so let's go ahead and uh, and cut to that right now. So, uh, we are here in Austin, Texas. Uh, Penny Deccan and I are doing our exclusionology class uh, for mostly some people from, um, from the Texas DPS Crime Lab uh, that have come here to Austin. We've had some fantastic food while we're here. Some brisket, some barbecue, some Tex-Mex, uh, and um, uh, now we're uh, sitting around the table here in the hotel room. Uh, talking to some people uh, that's from the class. So let's go around the table real quick, uh, get a little introduction from uh, uh, everybody that we're uh, hanging out here with. Okay, my name's Amanda. I'm from the DPS Crime Lab. Um, I've been doing latent prints about three years. I started with DPS in Austin and just kind of been here ever since. All right. Harris Cream. I work for the San Diego Sheriff's Crime Lab. I've been a late print examiner for two years and four months, two years training program, and I've been doing casework for four months now. 
uh, Vanessa Robles. I'm actually here at the Austin DPS lab, I, and I am the late imprint training right now. Uh, Jack Flanders, I work here at the Austin DPS crime lab, uh, coming up on 10 years. All right. Uh, Judith Miller, I work at the Austin crime lab, DPS crime lab. Um, I've been with DPS for about 34 years now, but only in latent for about three. All right, so um, I thought we could do something a little bit different here in this episode, do kind of a, a talk back at the Double Loop podcast. Um, so I'm uh, hoping here that uh, from our five guests, we have some questions uh, just to kind of, um, you know, ask at me and also just open it up for comments from, uh, from all six of us. So uh, Harris, you said you had something first? I do. First of all, I want to say your class, Exclusionology, it's day two. It's been really informative. I'm having a great time. Fantastic. Uh, quick question. I am a brand new examiner, so this might be elementary to a lot of like informative examiners out there. But my question is this. I feel like we're possibly giving a lot away. And when I say that is... We used to say identification, and I know we can't say to the exclusion of all others because we haven't tested everyone that's out there living and that's dead. I understand that. But now, um, and not taking anything away from the Army Crime Lab, but they're, they're making it to a verbiage where are we giving the evidence what it, what it needs? Now we're saying to this and we're saying to that, but when we make an identification, we believe it's an identification. We're not going to say to the exclusion of all others, but when we minimize this verbiage, is it giving that weight less weight in court? So I, it's interesting. You're, 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 you're seeing, like, even as you said, two years in training, right? Uh, and now four months uh, actually doing casework. Uh, and uh, in that time, you've recognized latent prints, fingerprints in general, highly specific. Like when you see something with a good 30, 40 points and there's got some crazy um, enclosures and, and weird crossovers and all sorts of crazy stuff, you know like that you're never going to see that in somebody else and that this ridge detail belongs to this person and this person alone and you feel that in your gut. And um, so you say identification. Now you speak to the exclusion of all others. Uh, not felt like this is kind of where I'm at, but now you're like, well, okay, I, I get it. We can't really prove that. Let me back off a little bit and just say identification. Uh, and then that's gone also along with, you know, the chance that it could be someone if someone else is almost zero. It's it's practically impossible to be somebody else. And now Army Crime Lab, it's it's not even saying identification anymore. It's now this special language that kind of means an association. And you're like, but it, it feels like it's better than that. Is, right. Is that, is that kind of where you're going with this? Exactly. So what I would say is, first of all, I, I think the, the way I like to think about the, to the exclusion of all others um, is even though, yes, I know my gut, this is never going to happen again. However, there is no like universal repository of friction ridge detail where as soon as a baby's born or formed in the womb and has this, this fingerprint pattern that you're now seeing that's super special, there's, there's nothing, there's no cosmic force that's preventing it from ever happening again. We're just relying on uh, the odds of it happening again are just incredibly huge, but it's not technically impossible. 
so that's um, that whole idea of well th there's no like again cosmic registration database of fingerprints to prevent it from happening again so that kind of really got me on, on the track of you're right we shouldn't be saying to the exclusion of all others because it, it seriously is possible however unlikely that this happens again um, but I don't, I don't think we're giving the jury the full amount the the exact uh, information that they need to hear when we're downplaying it so much because we're afraid what or the critics are telling us to do or or something along those lines we're we're not we're misleading the jury because the evidence is actually a lot higher what they're trying to get us to say and that's why in general I I and I you know would choose to do it this way even though my agency does it this way still prefer that term identification because to me it does imply this higher level of association that it does mean this whole specificity uniqueness that's that's inherent in fingerprints to the level that that i feel and want to as the expert describe to the jury and the army crime lab language to me is a little too soft now the other thing that the Carbon Crime Lab have done more recently is starting to do the numbers with the, the statistics. I think in the end, maybe you know, by the end of your career, we're going to be able to have that number that while right now we're like, well, it feels like we should say more and or and the Carbon Crime Lab just feels like, well, maybe it's too much, let's back off a little bit. But that's all just the words, right? We can be eventually be more specific if this whole number thing does pan out and actually work down the road, right. we can say likelihood ratio of uh, you know four quadrillion, just like DNA does, and it can be these crazy, insane numbers that don't even mean anything anymore because they're so goddamn big. And and that may be. Uh, what do you think? Is that, would that you think that would be an eventual solution to this this current word problem that we have? I, I just had the Army Crime Lab do somewhat of a open. Uh, it wasn't a video conference, but an audio conference with us and talking about um, their statistical model that they're using. And um, I would need more training as an examiner for me to go into court and, and do this. So either give me more training or I don't think I'm ready for this, you know, and I don't think many experienced examiners are ready for this. This is a whole new thing. and. I'm not mad at the number, you know what I mean? Right. Like, I'm, I'm okay with going to court and giving a number, but are we ready for this? I, I, me as a brand new examiner, I don't think I am, right. but as a, as a community, are we? I'm hey, not sure. There, there's people th that have been doing this for 30 plus years that aren't, don't feel like they're ready for, for the numbers that are coming, the statistics that are coming. And I think part of it is, well, you know, all it takes is going to be some training, some practice, and then we'll get there. Um, when APHIS first hit the scene 30 years ago, were examiners ready to testify on how APHIS worked? I think it took some time, some training right. for people to get ready and say, I don't know how these dang computers work. You know, I, um, How am I supposed to go into court and explain how this gave me the person that I identified? Um, and it still came down to that examiner makes the identification like they always had, testifying to that, and then there's this extra stuff to explain with the APHIS. I think it's going to be a similar thing. In the end, it's still going to be your comparison, your opinion, testifying to that, just like we always have, and then there's going to be this extra stuff we have to learn 
uh, to explain what the numbers mean. Uh, and right now, definitely fear of the unknown, but um, I think we can do it. Yeah. Um, I'm excited the, for the change, Eric. You are? More ch- yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> You're excited to go for it? I'm excited for the change. I know it's coming. Right. You know? um, so I, I'm with it, but uh, definitely going to need more training. Okay. Yeah. Any other thoughts on this topic? I mean, I'm trying to stay open-minded about it, but... But? it's I don't know. It's a lot to take in. I think Harris has some really good points. It's It's been a lot really quickly. I right. mean, we've seen the discipline change so much from when I when I transferred over to the lab in 2009. We're still using not identified. You know, then yeah. making that jump to exclusions. And now it sounds like we're going back to, you know, throwing in statistics. And I agree. I, I, I'm a little bit worried with some of what's coming out of the Army lab. But at the same time... I applaud them for, um, you know, looking for solutions in the field. And, the, you know, it, it's almost, Glenn and I have talked about this before, it's almost kind of the perfect, perfect test case scenario because they're working, uh, you know, they're testifying almost exclusively in these military courts, right? And uh, if, if, you know, anyone, at least in the U.S., um, would have like kind of the least impact on the rest of the court system that we all, the rest of us operate in, it's this, you know, it's this scenario. Uh, so, um, maybe, you know, this is kind of a blessing in disguise. We kind of work out some of the kinks uh, with this. Uh, but if, um, if uh, you know, if, if in the end their association term doesn't really make up does that make that much a difference in testimony well then maybe it's not even worth going we can just stick with identification and and it, it really didn't end up making a difference and maybe if their model ends up working out and and you know the courts are preferring that uh, then hopefully with some validation of that model or an improved model uh, you know that can be again a good thing there there's there's plenty to be Worried, not really worried about, but uh, there's plenty to you know of uncertainty which can lead to fear, but there's also so much promise in what could come from this, uh, and uh, you know, could um, you know, put latents back in top spot, take over as you know, golden standard for forensics, kick DNA back out of that spot, <laughs> uh, put us back where we belong. I, I try to approach it with this, uh little bit of worry but also uh you know hope for what what's possible um and i'm really anxious to kind of see what uh you know what's coming down the line it's it's there's a lot of change that's happened in just the past 10 15 years but i mean when else would you want to be a latent print examiner except right here right now this is this is amazing and um, with this group of people, I feel like we have a good amount of different experience level here. Yeah. And coming from a training's point of view, I'm kind of in that gray zone where I'm getting taught what they're doing now, but I'm in that transition phase where all of these new things are happening. So it's kind of, okay, I need to learn what's, what we're doing now, but I still need to have that ability to adapt to what, what is to come and the whole thing, what you were saying, the fear of the unknown. But at the same time, it's exciting because, like you said, it's, that change in our field that not a lot of people get to be a part of and we get it's kind of like a, a point of history that we're a part of right now and yeah. it's kind of exciting to see what's coming on living our way. in the paradigm shift yes exactly and, and can you imagine 30 years from now when you're telling some brand new trainee about yeah. how when you started 
we didn't even have a statistical model. We just went in and said identification, um, and they just you know took our word for it. Uh, and uh, uh, now when we say identification, we have all this data to support what we're saying. Yeah. Uh, and, and can you imagine telling that story to people you know 30 years from now? Eric, do you think we should have given away to the exclusion of all others? I so, do. So what, okay, so what we haven't fingerprinted everyone in the world and compare them to each other. But what is science? It's a theory that's believed to be true until proven otherwise. Why couldn't we hold on to that? The theory of biological uniqueness states that nothing repeats itself. Or, right. you know, uh, random growth, differential growth, all these things that go into it can't be duplicated. Why can't we hold on to that? Can you prove gravity? Once a ball goes upwards, then we'll stop it. It's on to the critics to find two fingerprints to find that they're the same before we have to prove that two fingerprints aren't the same. Why are we succumbing to that? It's... Okay, this is the way I would I would argue back on that point. Um, first, with yes, biological uniqueness. Uh, even if you're looking at down at a molecular level, it's impossible for two fingerprints to be the same uh, because even zoomed in at that level, um, the, the, you know, just with the differential growth, but even just with being different molecules in my finger versus somebody else's finger, uh, it, it's going to have that difference. But we're not comparing fingers. We're comparing fingerprints. Once you take that biological uniqueness, that differential growth that exists here, and you transfer it onto a surface, we're no longer now uh, being able to say, yep, this finger is biologically different than this finger over here. Now we've introduced this transformation from a complex three-dimensional shape to a two-dimensional surface, and introduced all sorts of distortion into that, now we have to recognize the real possibility that as the expert, there can be enough distortion between that transfer and just in the regular kind of distortion that we normally talk about to make it so that another person, if I compare this latent print I'm leaving now, if I compare this one to another person, there's a chance as the expert, I might be fooled into thinking it belongs to some other person as opposed to me. Now, the good part is that we're, and there's this you know, data out here to support us now as opposed to before where we just had, we just kind of said, hey, don't worry, we're really good at this. And now we can actually you know, show studies that prove that. Um, but we can say we're really good at recognizing and when there's enough information that we as experts can say, I am, I, there is this possibility that I could be fooled because this distortion has distorted enough to look like somebody else's print. But I'm saying ID because I don't think that this is possible in this case. Um, so once we move to that print as opposed to the actual finger itself, we, we kind of lose the ability to use the biological and differential growth arguments. My only point is this, we have to be weary as a community not to give up too much, whereas distortion, and we could somewhat explain that, thanks for Alice, the queen of distortion, <laughs> Alice, uh, for helping us understand what happens. But 
let's not move too far from from our initial beliefs and initial what science tells us about the biological uniqueness about fingerprints. Let's not go too far from that because in court we're going to be misleading the jury. Absolutely, you 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 don't want to oversell the evidence, uh, but you also don't want to undersell. undersell it. It, yes. You don't want to undersell it either, and I think that. Uh, you're right. Some of the critics are pushing us to start underselling uh, our our um, our evidence. I like where we're at right now, where we we say, you know what, some of the stuff we said before was a little too much. We do now recognize it's possible, however unlikely, it's possible to uh, for a fingerprint examiner to be fooled and identify the wrong person. It's happened in rare cases, but you know there's actually documented cases of it happening. So we have to, you know, I mean, honestly agree, you know, uh, recognize that it has happened. But when we say this identification, what it means is I am uh, confident in my conclusion uh, that these two prints remain by the same source. Uh, I don't expect it, another source to be possible that it would that would fool me, uh, but I do recognize that. It is extremely unlikely, however possible, uh, for do for you me believe to be wrong. that when you make an identification? Do you believe that 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 I'm right? That it's possible this is someone else's print. Um, I believe that uh, when I make say identification, I, I'm not going to say identification if I believe that there is a real possibility of that happening. But when you make an identification, that there, I do, I do. Do you and do you believe it's to the exclusion of all others without saying that in court? No, because to me, uh, and that's kind of gets more back, back to the definition of exclusion. To me, an exclusion is an actual decision that I make after comparing somebody. I cannot theoretically exclude. It, it's for me that's not a possibility. Exclusion only occurs after I actually compare somebody. So excluding all others impossible because. I can only exclude somebody I actually compare. But getting but back can, to your you point, you can theoretically exclude everyone based on theory and based on not by my definition of exclusion. Uh, my definition of exclusion only occurs after you actually uh, uh, do a comparison. But to your bigger point of, do I believe that when I identify that do I say that do I do I think that there's this possibility? I believe that there is a. Um, theoretical possibility that I could be fooled, but when I make a, a an identification, I'm saying that the real possibility of that happening just really doesn't exist anymore. Right. Now, I wish I could remember Michelle Triplett's um, like exact wording because I don't want to try to quote her, but it seems like you know she was talking about when you make a conclusion, it's based on the data in the print. So you're using the data to make the best conclusion available to you. Uh, I don't know, that kind of spoke to me. I thought that that helped. Uh, yeah, um, and if all that data is pointing towards identification... Or exclusion. Or exclusion, uh, go with it. And if the data is not sufficient for either one, inconclusive. And I'm okay with inconclusive. <laughs> so many people are just like, I don't like inconclusive. No, it's just, it's, it's okay. It's like, it's... <laughs> so, it's okay to be inconclusive. It's okay. Well, I like to, I, I think the, the farther we're getting, like one of the things I do like in this big shift is we're getting more inconclusive options. And as an examiner, I find that really helpful because when I was first trained, it seemed it was very much black and white. It's an ID, 
or it's not an ID, or maybe your exemplars weren't good enough. And now we're starting to see, no, it, it's okay to have characteristics in agreement, but it's still inconclusive, or we do not have these elements in the print to actually reach an exclusion decision. So I find that liberating. I'm a brand new examiner, but I feel like I'm an old man at heart. <laughs> let's not expand our uh, opinion scale. Let's, let's keep it at three. I, I do like keeping it at three, but I will agree with Jack in I like the different reasons that you can be inconclusive. The options yeah. of being inconclusive. Uh, of, yes. of, not even just options of inconclusive, but, but saying, okay, inconclusive is just I didn't make that decision or that decision. And then, you know... The reasons. The yeah. Then there's qualifications. Well, then because then the immediate follow-up is, well, why didn't you reach these other two conclusions? And then being able, to, well, this is why. Uh, and sometimes, you know, it's not just one reason why you're inconclusive. There's right. different reasons right. why. Right. No, and I really liked in class when you said um, with the whole inconclusive because with some of my um, exercises that I've been doing. I feel like I'm more hesitant on calling an exclusion rather than an ID because with an ID I'm very confident that it's an ID and with an exclusion I'm like okay well maybe I miss it and let me go back again and look at everything and I'll I'll catch myself going back three or four times just going over and over again trying to not want to make that exclusion because what if it is there and there's that still fear of the unknown type deal and well, Just. Ron Smith, I think, best described it is when you make that identification, you get the warm fuzzy. Yes. Um, and you don't get warm fuzzies with exclusions. No, because you always have that in the back of your mind, like, okay, what if it is there and I missed it? So you just part of go that. Back. Part of At that, least, though, like, as a new training, that's how I feel true, with but my exercise. I would also say part of it is because you're in a class that deals at least partly with erroneous exclusions, so you're just naturally going to be more leery about exclusions. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's funny that you bring up the warm fuzzy feeling. I'm trying to get away from using feeling words when describing, you know, my analysis or even an identification. And uh, we've been talking about that a lot at work where um, that's actually what I've been uh, using the gyro uh, system more often is uh, when I have those borderline prints and even myself, I'm looking at them like, is, is this print usable or is it not? Whether you're, you know, approach one, approach two. By using gyro, I can better articulate, okay, I've got, you know, three high confidence characteristics and then now everything else is red, you know, and I just have <laughs> no confidence in it. Right. So now it's a lot easier for me to say, well, due to that data and that print, I have a lot of evidence to support that this is not suitable for me to move on uh, even to the comparison phase. So, One of the things that really helps me is on those borderline prints. Uh, especially on those, I go to town. I start marking stuff, uh, especially with the red. I'm marking stuff in the edges, I'm marking all sorts of stuff because I know that I'm going to be limited in the number of minutiae that I can find. Um, and then I put it side by side and I might find it. Okay, I start going through and I got a couple green, a couple yellow, you know, a whole bunch of red, and a couple oranges as well. And so now I'm doing that evaluation. That's when it's really helpful to me is go back. And sometimes there's that really, that minutia that really is the thing that is going to make or break the ID. And if I go back and if it's orange, then that's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to go with it. But even if it's just red, okay, I saw it before I saw the exemplar. Mm -hmm. And here's the proof that I saw it first before I saw the exemplar. And sometimes that'll be enough to be like, you know what, okay, I'm good with it. I'm good with mm -hmm. it. Even though I wasn't really sure, 
It was red, but I found it. And that counts uh, a lot for me, especially if it's red and not orange. Yeah, going back to what Jack said about feeling, I've noticed I've done this with the orientation of a print, and I'll say it just feels right this way. And I know I've talked to Alice about it, and I've talked to Jack a couple that articulating it, not just saying like feeling, it just feels right this way, and just saying why it feels right this way. And I know I'm, I've been working on that, and so. Um, but it wasn't until he pointed out where he was like, I need to stop saying it just I feel like this and I was like, oh, I do do that too. And especially with with trying to find that orientation. I'm just like, it's, it just feels right. This I don't know why, but the other ways just don't feel right. But 100% agreeing with him when he said that we kind of need to move away from feeling and kind of trying to say why it is that way. And yes, kind of hard to follow back. On it. But I, I still think that that latent print examiners uh, are, are sometimes they do have to still listen to their gut I like that um, because I've had lots of times where I, I didn't find it I didn't find it I didn't find it but I kept looking because you know you're not done because I'm like <laughs> I, it just feels like it's here somewhere yes. and again I don't want to use that feeling term but it just feels like and I think to articulate it better would be well, the ridge widths and the ridge texture is uh, is you know seems to uh, you know be, correspond to this exemplar, um, but in, in just in your gut, you're like, it feels like it should be here somewhere, and then you keep looking, you keep looking, and then sometimes you eventually do find it. Yeah. Even though you're like, on most of my comparisons, I don't spend this time my amount of time looking, but this time I did, and it actually ended up paying off. Because I, sometimes I think our gut does help us um, in, in those kinds of situations. Well, like with those comparisons you gave us today on day two, I made myself go do the whole 360, but I kept finding myself going back to that one position I thought. I was like, I need to get away from this, but I keep coming back to this one, and I don't know why. And then um, some I would find it, some I wouldn't, but it was just that trying to break away from it. But I really liked what um, Penny said with trying to restart your brain and looking at it different, um, different ways. But I did find myself going 360 but still saying that no this one just feels right and I was trying to break myself so I might I think that might be why I took so long with some of the extra with some of the comparisons but um yeah I did find myself going over and over again and just coming back to that same position that I initially thought it was and sometimes, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't but one good way to break that is to turn the exemplars upside down yeah. which then turns your lighting upside down so then as you're going and, I'm like and going rotating it, it <laughs> then you don't do that automatic flip back to the way you initially thought it was yeah. because that would then put it upside down from your exemplars. It kind of breaks you of that instinct and lets you look at things um, in every orientation yeah. uh, if you need to do that. Uh, so, yeah, I like doing the same kind of thing. Is, yeah, just turn those exemplars upside down. Yeah. That usually helps with that problem. Man, do you have any questions you want to throw up? I'm sorry, no, I'm just taking it all in and processing. <laughs> okay. I think, kind of, I guess, when we first started talking, I just think there's going to be a constant battle of marrying the science of what we're doing and making it as most fact and research and database as possible, but also not over underwhelming the jury because at the end of the day, I think if they hear identification, that's kind of what's going to stick with them. And I know we don't want to bog them down with stats and extra, but we also have to keep up as being a science and 
and working for the purpose that we work for. So it's just, I think it's going to be a pendulum swing, kind of probably forever. Until <laughs> we, we, we find a, a, you know, a shorter middle ground than kind of where we're at right now. But. And going off on what Amanda said, I feel like because DNA has that stats and has those numbers to them, we'll always have that, well, why don't you have that? Like, why aren't you guys using that for your results? And it's always going to be that battle, like Amanda said, is, but... I took Alice's class, and she went through all of these articles that have been coming out, and stats work, but at the same time, there's so many discrepancies within them that you can't have the perfect model for all of these statistics, and her breaking those down really opened my eyes to them, and I fully understood those articles. When I first read them, it was like, I don't understand anything that's going on. It just, yeah, just (laughs) flew over my head, but Alice really broke it down, and when it kind of makes you think like, yeah, like, we have all of these great models, but all of these models aren't perfect. They are all missing something to make the the perfect model. So, right. yeah, I feel like, like Amanda said, we'll always be in that constant battle, and I feel like we'll always be compared to DNA, and that's not always good, but... <laughs> and I think you're right with that pendulum swing thought. And, and like so many things in life, the answer is going to be in the middle somewhere uh, and not at the extreme end one way or the other. Judith, you want to jump in with anything here? I spent so many years in the tin print side and coming over to Layton, you know, for I I heard so much all those years of this is how it's done and this is what we say and this is, you know, and I'm struggling to to look at it this other way, but it's it's a whole nother learning curve. I mean, you'd heard for years about you know these kind of standards of what Layton print people say and and how they testify, and then all of a sudden you get over to Layton's, and all of a sudden everything starts changing on you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just, just bad timing, I guess. I think I started the month the NAS report came out. Oh, really? Uh, oh, that's, uh, that's good, good timing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, awesome. Uh, you guys are, you guys have finished day two, you have one more day to go. I, I like asking this when we do. So um, sad to see y'all leave. Oh, thank you. Um, I, I like asking this because I've done this kind of thing before interviews uh, with people from the class um, uh, just quick thoughts about the, the class so far um, in general or the exercises uh, in uh, specifically uh, uh, thoughts so far where you guys stand in general I really liked the distinction between you know separating identification from exclusion and not, you know, mirroring the same requirements for each. That there would be different things that you need. And I really liked that, that how that was hit home. Awesome. Yeah, I, I uh, firmly believe that, and and really wish that that would um, that would take hold and actually even spread to other forensic disciplines. So I think that's something that could really be used uh, in a lot of other disciplines as well. Um, is is to not just set up the ID and exclusion as the opposites, and they're just mirrors of mirror images of each other, but look at each one individually, figure out their utility function, uh, the information that's important to both, uh, exactly like you said. Uh, that'd be that'd be really cool if it spread from there, from breath, spread from us to help out the rest of the forensic disciplines. Yeah, I've loved the class so far. Y'all have taught me so much, and like Jack said, I like that y'all have kind of told us there's a route for ID and then for exclusions and in 
for those comparisons, I kind of doubted myself. <laughs> and I'm not even signed off on casework yet. I'm just a trainee, but I kind of doubted myself. Like, okay, I'm not, I can't even see these, but those two that I got, I felt myself pushing myself in those. And yeah, it was very challenging, but it was a good kind of challenging. And well, it wouldn't be fun if it was easy. Yeah. I mean, come on. I, <laughs> but traveled, I needed that little confident booster, too. And yeah. all traveled, of these, I traveled all the way from Arizona. You want me to bring easy comparisons? Come yeah, on. I spent about an hour just on one. I was like, I'm, I need, I think I need a new field. But, yeah, no, it's one of those. And my trainer kind of eased me. She, she told me, she's like, you're still in training. You're right. fine. And so... Well, tomorrow, no more searching. You just get latent to one finger exemplar. Yeah. And I think, not that they're going to get any easier, but I think that um, it'll help you, it'll let you focus in more on that phase instead yeah. of just the, where is it? I'm yeah. just looking everywhere. <laughs> I where was so is overwhelmed, it? and I noticed myself just going all over the place, and I just didn't know where to start. Right. No, yes. no, you weren't going in any kind of no. a... a nice no. pattern you were just yes instead of going like I'm one sorry, to five six off. to What's ten here? <laughs> at eric ray forensic <laughs> yeah no instead of because normally when i do my comparisons with my exercise i'll do the whole strategic and this one i just found myself jumping around and going from one to ten yeah it was like a whole I panic would, i felt myself panicking <laughs> like that i could feel my eyes just like moving all over the page and i couldn't just focus and mm -hmm. i felt that for a good 45 minutes <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully that that's part of the learning experience too. Then is to even when it's, you get you, you come across a tough one because I mean these you know you may think these are hard but you may come across harder ones in casework. There's no guarantees that you're only going to get easy ones in casework, right? No. It um, will be easy not after suitable. taking exclusionology. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for uh, for talking with uh, with me here. Um, and it's fun to kind of get back questions uh, a little bit um, from uh, from listeners. Thank you guys so much for coming to the class and also for talking with me tonight. And um, keep listening to the Double Loop Podcast. Yay. Cool. Thanks, Eric. Yep, yep. Glenn, um, so you had a chance also to listen to uh, our little interview with everybody. and uh, I did. Well, I wanted to ask just kind of your impressions of some of those questions and, and uh, anything else you wanted to add in. Uh, after that conversation. Yeah, I mean, there were a few things that, that stood out. I mean, I thought that the discussion, it, it's, it's very interesting that, um, I mean, Harris is very sincere, and, you know, he was talking about, you know, being a little newer in the profession. But it, and it's interesting. It doesn't matter if he's newer or if he's 10 years in or 12 years or 20 years. It's, I think it's very hard for fingerprint examiners to let go of this exclusion to all others and right. he was very hung up on that for, for quite a bit and I, I thought actually I, I agree with your answers I mean I think once uh, Swigfast and you know the fingerprint profession have attempted to define exclusion as a result of a comparison then I mean it ultimately has to come from a comparison but you know he came back to well no it's a de facto exclusion I mean you don't have to because fingerprints are unique once you identify the source you don't need to look at anybody else because everyone else is, has therefore by you know through logic been excluded and um I, I appreciate how difficult that is to let go. I, I do. I mean, I, I get that. Um, but we, I, I, I do think we have to. I think we have 
to let that go. And, you know, he engages in what Simon Cole identified to a long time ago as the examiner fallacy, that because fingerprints are unique um, and because I have identified this person, um, therefore they can be the one and only source and I'm right about that and it can't be anybody else. And, uh, you know, it gets confused with the accuracy of fingerprints um, and the weight of fingerprints versus um, our ability to exclude and, you know, what this means is a single source conclusion. So um, I I, I thought that it was was a little painful for me to sit on the side and listen to that, but I I agreed with your answers. (laughs) Okay. It's... I'm glad I did okay then. Um, no, I mean, I think you and I are on the same page w- with this. It's just, I, I think it's it's just hard. It's hard for examiners to let go. And I appreciate that not all examiners have had maybe the same experiences and been on the same committees and, um, you know, the same uh, same <laughs> fingerprint examiner privilege <laughs> that you and I have had. <laughs> Um, I mean, our experiences are, you know, out of the norm. And so as a result, I mean, spending time with heavy, heavy thinkers, you know, you, you, it, it becomes easier to break away from that, I think, for people like us, but maybe not, you know, the average examiner at the bench. And I think, you know, from, um, again, that, that perspective, you know, I can, I can feel behind it kind of this, this unspoken experience and, and this unspoken kind of thought behind it of, you know, a really specific finger, you know, where you're getting like 50, 60 points or, or a yeah. nice big palm with, you know, 150, 200 points in common. Um, or, or, or all 10 fingers. I agree. There, there is a realm you can enter where it's kind of ridiculous to, to hold on to well theoretically some person out there could have i i agree that there is this weird continuum that once you cross over to a certain point it seems a bit silly to maintain and i think he even said something along those lines right you know um you know uh, isn't isn't there a certain point or isn't there uh, isn't the evidence so much higher uh than it is and i think he meant having so much more weight than it truly does and yet we're diminishing it by putting it all in the one category. I th- thought that was a good point, but I I still think, I mean, you, you said it. I mean, whether it's one in a trillion or one in a quintillion, it's still a theoretical chance. Exactly. That's why I, I kind of like the, the, you know, coming at it from a few different perspectives, too, of um, whether that be, you know, the more kind of mathematical, there's this, you know, theoretical chance and or... or looking at these different fallacies um, or you know looking at just from a definition of like you were saying like of exclusion thinking of it that way of okay let's just if we're going to define exclusion as being the end result you know one possible end result of a comparison then it you know it's also now not meaning this theoretical exclusion anymore um yeah and i, I think um kind of depending on different examiners' experience, you know, different people may kind of, it may make sense to them more coming from one perspective or the other um, as kind of the beginning of this, of this thought experiment of, and then, you know, maybe uh, 
depending on the person, they kind of arrive at both sides of that uh, from different perspectives or traveling through uh, you know, different thoughts to kind of get to the same spot. So, yeah, it was it was a interesting discussion, and you know, kind of made me think about how how different things are for new examiners coming into the field now, um, even from just you know 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, and also how much in the end, especially in this latent print field, how much we are the product of our trainers. Um, yes, for sure. I mean, you, you've you've spoken about that before about having having certain perspectives or parroting back certain uh, ideas earlier in your career and how that evolves over time from yeah. that you know very similar to your trainer perspective to then you know as time goes by to more of your own perspective on things. Right, and and again, it's those experiences and meeting those other people and hearing different ideas, and it takes those things, I think, to break some of the mold of your training. Not not that it's all bad, of course, there's a no. lot of good there, but it's you're you're right. You you do end up parroting just what you hear because it's just what you how you learned it. Um, I I thought too that you know um, again Harris's point that you know at some point are we. Uh, diminishing the value of fingerprint and minimizing it a, a bit fingerprint evidence and you know doesn't that even in some way mislead the jury or you know overly confuse the jury and uh, well frankly I I don't know I mean I, I have very mixed feelings about this and these little excursions I do with lay people right asking them about fingerprint evidence I I don't know I'm I'm very surprised at the range of answers I get from lay people I I think we think they think something about fingerprints that may not entirely be true. I don't know that they believe the way that we might believe that no two people have fingerprints or it can't appear in someone else, especially when they keep hearing things about partial fingerprints and it's only 10 to 15% of the rolled area of a finger. Right. I I'm telling you I I I don't know. I think we do a lot of projecting onto them, and I just don't know that we have the evidence uh, that shows that we're misleading them in some way. I, I think they're already somewhat skeptical about some of our claims, but that's me. I mean, you know, yeah, again, I mean, it's, the ex- it's my experiences that are leading me that way. And, I mean, you know, even some of the stuff that we've talked about recently with, like, uh, you know, Bill Thompson's done... Uh, with juries mm-hmm. I, I again i see where harris is coming from as to even just kind of take a step back and, and think okay here's what we used to say here's what we currently say here's where what some people are now saying like you know uh, the army crime lab um here's what some of our critics want us to say here's what some of our more extreme critics want us to say you know where on this on this scale that seems to yeah. be pretty, you know, broad. You know, taking all those things into consideration, yeah. where on that scale should we all actually fall, so that we're not overstating, but we're also not understating things. So that that whole understating argument, I, I get it. When you you know start throwing in some of these other things of uh, of what even some of our more extreme critics want us to uh, want us to say instead, you know, at what point do we? Do we actually start to enter that that understating realm where now that now the jury is even though even if 
they're pretty skeptical to begin with. You know, now they're even more skeptical because of the way things are phrased. Sure. And yeah, it's really hard to convey. And you know, even even if we all that data, you know, is really solid and replicated many many times. You know, where we like, okay, if we say it this way, then you know, on average, the jury is going to understand it to mean about what we want it. Yeah, you know, what we actually think. You know, that's still going to be on average, and there's going to be different variations and language is a tricky thing you know <laughs> yes yeah and, and and i think communicating certainty and um i, I think uh, confidence in these kinds of things I, I i think really is a challenge I, I think it always has been um one of the other things on the topic of communication was uh, something that jack mentioned and I had a chance to to meet Jack recently. What what a nice guy! Yeah, he's great. And yeah, <laughs> and that, I love his I love his energy and enthusiasm. Uh, but I, I he picked up on something that uh, stood out was the avoiding feeling words. You know, I feel yes, or yes. I feel this way or I feel like this is what's going on. And it's funny because ETL drawer picked up on that uh, on me a few years ago. And every time I'd say that, he'd point out, "Well, what do you mean you feel?" And I just, at first it was annoying, and then after a while I went, you know, he's got a point here. Uh, so I, and, and I think this is very much American culture these days. I think somehow very subtly in our language we started switching to feeling as opposed to I believe or I think. Uh, and, and partly I think, it, I, I do think, I think it's a little subconscious because you can disagree with someone's um, beliefs. You can disagree with, right. um, you know, what they're thinking, a fact. Uh, but it's hard to disagree with someone's feelings because they have a right to feel whatever way they want. And, and so I, I do think it's, it's, it's a little interesting that that word has crept in to our vernacular as fingerprint examiners. And I, I, I agree with Jack that I've been paying extra attention to it to avoid using that word and it still slips out i i, I think I, I i i think it would be a good um uh, one of those court you know you pay attention to this in your moot court right. pay attention to this in language uh, uh, just as you're trying to avoid the ums and ahs i would avoid the word i feel i i, I think that it's a, it's a it's a good idea too i, I thought jack was very astute in that observation yeah, um, I, you know, maybe it's this, like you're saying, this whole cultural thing where I, I can't even pinpoint a, a hard uh, example, but you know, but it shouldn't really have a place in a more scientific uh, setting, where you know we should be a, a little bit more concerned about describing the actual you know data that's leading us to to certain decisions. Um, yes, the, I made a decision. These data support my my decision. Right. Uh, ultimately, you can have an opinion, and my opinion is this, um, or I believe that, or I believe that because of X, Y, Z. But I, I I do think it is a good idea to avoid. I feel, and you were looking for examples, and the one that always springs to mind is I read that and I felt threatened. It is uh, right, you know, nowadays everyone feels threatened or felt offended or the, everyone seems overly offended, overly threatened, overly whatever. And you can't, you're not allowed to argue that because that's how they feel. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's that thing that annoys the, annoys me. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, now, you know, thinking back to even like in training, I think back to, you know, Ron Smith's 
palm class um, and how uh-huh. that even in, in that discussion it, it seemed like um, I remember him talking about how that class kind of evolved from you know people coming to him asking okay what part of the palm is this from and him just kind of giving an answer you know it's this and people are kind of asking well, why and it's, oh, it just kind of feels right that it you know it just feels right yeah right and you know that the class kind of evolved from okay let's try to figure out exactly what i'm seeing here what what is the clue that feels right in more concrete terms um, yeah, but, I mean, the technically correct answer is I tend to observe this ridge flow in this orientation. Right. That's the, the technically correct answer. Or I most often observe it in this orientation. And so I expect it should normally be in this orientation as opposed to, well, it just felt right. Not that, I mean, look, we understand what we're all saying here, but if we're looking for... <laughs> technically correct language that's what i would be going with in that process of going from the initial you know analysis of a latent print all the way through to you know making that final decision there are you know along the way all these kind of mini decisions um okay what what orientation do i compare it at do i need to look at the palms in addition to the fingers is this an ending or a bifurcation uh, a lot of these kind of little decisions along the way, some part of it, you know, you know, comes from the gut, which I, I think is the inaccurate way of saying just that experience of looking at a whole lot of ridge detail uh, in the past. But it becomes really automatic for us. That uh, that automatic automaticity, that instinct, feels like you know, oh, uh, more of a feeling. Um, where it's just this now fast interpretation of the data that we're, we're seeing in front of us. Um, I don't know, I'm just kind of talking this no, out. I, I mean, you're hitting on the Malcolm Gladwell concept, that uh, <laughs> thin slicing. I mean, right. uh, you know, that's right. That the ex- expert knows something is off, but it's because of having done something thousands and thousands of times and developed automaticity. automaticity. Even though there really is something more there, it, it does take that conscious effort to move from this feeling um, that something's right or wrong uh, into expressing it. But then again, that that expression, that verbalization of it, uh, can be very helpful uh, in revealing whether or not it's it's valid. Yeah, I talk about it in my in my uh, in my classes, which is why it's so hard for one man shop sometimes. Sometimes you just need to just say it out loud. And like, okay, let me hold, just sit here for a second. Let me talk this through. All right, I think this is the orientation because I see this and this and this. And he's kind of just describing it. And in just that process of moving from in your head to out of your head, um, things can either be confirmed as, yeah, okay, this is now all the information. This is all why I believe this. Or as you're saying it out loud, it sometimes can feel like, uh, this doesn't actually sound as good as I thought it was when it was just floating around in my head. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, and I, I think the uh, the the last thing that stood out to me was something that you that you were talking about, and um, I, I I thought, I mean, I, I know that I disagree a little bit, but I'm not. Um, 
let me let me get it out. <laughs> it was it was your it was your comment about gyro, and that I I I was interested in that that you you have an approach where you you want to mark a lot more features in red, and then if you end up finding that feature there that means something a lot more to you than having marked an orange without that. So I think I got the impression you tend to mark extra heavy on the red uh, and in the hopes that should it be there, uh, you're, you know, you're going to use it. And I think you even said, you know, almost a tipping point uh, towards an ID if if you find that feature. And I, I, I thought that was interesting because if anything, I've moved away from using red because the error rates on the red features are so ridiculous that from what we have seen, they're wrong about half the time that, the red features truly are almost a guess. It's it's like a coin flip. They're roughly fifty percent error rate, and it, it really has uh, had me philosophically questioning. If we're that wrong about it, if you're wrong about every other one, do you really how, how much weight to really put on a red that is corresponding? So it was interesting hearing your perspective. Um, I, my 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 internal jury is still out on this. I'm I'm still I mean ten years later still trying to flesh out my use of gyro, but I, I just <laughs> noticed that I I have predominantly moved towards green and yellow, and then rare sparingly use red now. Whereas I think I used to use it a lot more, but I got the sense that you used it uh, quite the opposite than I did. But I'm not, not I'm just well, you know I'm not saying that's good or bad. I just right. just noticed that 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 difference. I, think, I mean, it kind of depends on the print. You know, if if there's a print with, you know, plenty of targets to, to choose from, um, you know, obviously kind of go for the greens and maybe a couple of yellows and, and just kind of don't even bother with the reds. The, the specific situation sure. where... I get that, yeah. ...where I, I want to spend all, you know, so much extra time is when I know that it's... When I suspect that it's going to be, a, you know, a borderline comparison at the end. So... In my head, that's kind of what I always thought red to be was was the fifty fifty points and with with yellow being a little bit more like seventy five eighty and then that's the, correct the greens being ninety eight or so ninety five ninety eight yep, that's that, that's exactly what the error rates are and I um I, what I kind of want is a bit of a a biofeedback loop on that um, sometimes I I feel like I'm I feel like <laughs> sometimes I get the impression um, that uh, I'm overusing yellow where I should just be marking them green because on just standard comparisons, I'm not really deleting all that many. I might move some a little, you know, a half a ridge or so, but I'm not really deleting a whole lot, um, which makes me think maybe I, maybe those should be more green where I, I'd like to get like um you know, for a whole comparison or a whole case or a whole month's worth of cases, data back on how often I'm deleting um, these different colors uh, mm. so that I can actually, instead of just this general feeling, actually think, actually then implement change uh, and and purposefully decide, you know what, I am using yellow too often. These are really green points because I'm not deleting them. I just need, I need to save yellows for things that are a little less certain than what I'm currently doing. Um, and then sure. you kind of get a better feet, uh, get it, getting a, 
a better way to hit the percentages that I actually mean gyro to be. Um, that tool isn't really out there. So, you know, I don't know. Hopefully some um, magical investment company is listening that just wants to, to make all these awesome tools for us. But uh, I, I think that will be the way to, to perfect uh, and get gyro to a place where it's most helpful and um, it'll very much drastically help improve uh, differences between examiners on how they use it. Uh, is, is if everyone's getting the same kind of biofeedback uh, and trying to hit the, these percentages, uh, then you know we'll actually have a way to get closer together and what we mean. And we already have that for decisions because those are verified. So you know we have this kind of built-in feedback as to what is an ID. Um, but we currently have no way of reinforcing the idea of what is a green point uh, other than just kind of talking about it but there's not that consequence that um, or that feedback that you would get from this system or with this exception of uh, a system like they have um, in the Netherlands right yep exactly yeah I, I i do think technology could be useful there particularly if we had some kind of quality mapping where the quality map in some way would help inform the gyro decision you know if the quality map says this is red it might be telling us hey green would not be appropriate here oh right you know I, I, there's there's different tools out there there's you know there's different enhancement tools like in aphis where you know something might be kind of on the edge or kind of i don't know and then you, you hit like um i don't know for our system we have a connector tool uh that, that kind of breaks it down into just a binary black or white ridge or furrow and then all of a sudden you know if that shows up then oh, okay look there's something then to support that but um you know then that's only the aphis system and i don't know it's um it's it's definitely uh, a way to to improve, uh, and you know that's what kind of the Double Loop podcast is all about: looking for different ways to improve. Yep, I agree. All right, um, well, thanks, Glenn, for listening in and uh, and making some comments uh, on our discussion. And uh, next episode will be our discussion of the uh, Atlanta conference. Um, so, anything else to add in tonight? Yeah. Yeah, quick quick plug. Uh, there's still time to register for our upcoming class. Uh, this would be Advanced ASB Applications in Novi, Michigan, uh, suburb of Detroit, and that is October second through the through the sixth. October second through the the sixth. Go to Ron Smith and Associates to register for that class. And if you're interested in exclusionology, go ahead and go to RayForensics.com uh, for a list of upcoming classes. Uh, or to contact me about bringing it to your neck of the woods. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, don't forget to listen to us on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, or on iTunes. And for whatever app or system you choose to listen to the Double Loop Podcast, go in and rate us. Give us five stars or more if that's not the top number of stars you can give to our podcast uh, on iTunes or whatever that is. Uh, and spread the, uh, the Double Loop Podcast love. Uh, send us questions or comments to eric at rayforensics.com or to glenn at glenn at elite forensic services.com. 
Uh, also remember that the views and opinions expressed herein are those of me and Glenn and not necessarily those of anybody else or any agency. Uh, so with that, we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. Have a great week. Bye.